Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3 R. I'm Dr. Shane. Hello there, Melbourne in lockdown. We're still with you. Triple uh, R keeps going no matter what. We are very happy to be putting the science out to you this weekend, especially it's been a big vic- uh, weekend for me. Uh, got vaccinated yesterday. Very happy about that. And thanks to all the staff at Western Health for their fine work out at the showgrounds. It was a long wait in the cold, but um, great people out there doing great things. On the line, uh, we have Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I, I'm jealous. I want to. Get, I'm hoping to get vaccinated next week, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the chance. Yep. Look, it's. Uh, I would recommend people make a booking. Uh, <laughs> I was outside for a while, but I met some amazing people uh, while I was in the line, and uh, you know that's always fun. So. You know, Melbournians get out there and do stuff. And I'm a Western boy, so, you know, nice to meet some people from the West and and get involved in uh, what was a, an extraordinarily long uh, scenario. But we all got there in the end, and it was pretty uh, pretty good. So, yeah, good stuff. Oh, fantastic. Now, we have our, we actually are messing things around a bit today on the show. We've turned it around. We've got our first guest, hopefully, on the line now, Associate Professor Adrian Dyer from RMIT University. Adrian, good morning. Good morning. It's great to talk to you. Now, you've been doing some work that I guess it's in our, our namesake's uh, tradition here, but you've been looking at some of the early writings and so forth that Albert Einstein did and some of the letters that he sort of sent around, and it's given us some really unique insights into what he was thinking about birds and bees and physics. Give us, give us some, uh, an idea of what, what this letter is, how you got your hands on it, what it involves. Yeah, actually, how we got our hands on it is a nice insight. So my, my lab, we look at bees as a model for understanding uh, cognition and how you can learn very complex tasks. And we published a couple of studies, one in science in 2018, another paper in 2019, showing that bees could understand the concept of zero and could do basic arithmetic. Hmm. And uh, so this got a bit of media around the world and a, a lovely lady in England heard a BBC radio interview and she wrote to us or wrote to me and said, oh, wow, this is really interesting, but, but what you're doing, Einstein proposed 70 years ago because I have a letter in my possession which, which he sent to my late husband. Wow. Really going, really? <laughs> and so she was kind enough to send it to us and indeed, Einstein was saying, wow, we might learn new things for physics uh, from looking at the bees and the birds. And so we spent about a year investigating this. Hmm. And we found that uh, Einstein had met Carl von Frisch. Carl von Frisch is a very famous researcher who decoded the bee dance. And he had presented a talk at Princeton University in 1949 and met Einstein and had sat down and discussed the birds and the bees, apparently. And so we, we spent about a year sort of pulling apart the letter, validating it with the Albert Einstein archives, that it was a genuine letter, and trying to understand what he had said and how the fields progressed. So, so is your view there that uh, Einstein was probably looking at 
things like birds and bees and realizing that their perception of the universe and our world was very very different and maybe they could see something that we couldn't is that is that you think where they, they were headed yeah i think so um we don't have the original letter which uh was a mr davies who had written to einstein um glenn davies passed away in 2011 but when we went through the records, and his family was fantastic at helping us with the records, he had joined the British Royal Navy in 1942 and trained as an engineer, and he was working on radar, which was top secret at the time for detecting ships and, and aircraft. And by complete coincidence, in 1944, there was a paper published on BATS um, bat, bats are much maligned at the moment, but bats, mm. bats are also cool. Uh, bats detecting um, uh, uh, different stimuli with echolocation or biosonar. So I think it had alerted the engineering and physics world to, wow, animals have different senses. And then in 1949, von Frisch had published that bees can sense a polarisation of sky light for telling where the sun is and using that as an orientation aid. Yeah, look, it's amazing to me things like polarisation back then were, were pretty new. Um, you know, we didn't really know a lot about that and how light could actually have an orientation. Yeah. And, you know, we weren't all walking around with polarised sunglasses back then. So it was one of those things where if you, if you learned that there are specific parts of the animal kingdom that can, you know, use that, it's, that that's phenomenal. Now, now Carbon Trish, he won, he won the Nobel Prize, didn't he? For, was that for the bee work? Yes, yes. So um, much later, so he met, Calvin Frisch met Einstein in um, April of 1949. Calvin Frisch was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1973 for his life's work. But in his acceptance speech, which was actually given by his son because Calvin Frisch was ill at the time, mm. uh, he highlighted the 1948-1949 uh, experiments showing that bees could sense a polarisation of light and communicate. So they have a symbolic dance language or sy symbolic language to communicate with conspecifics or nestmates. And this is really about the first time that us as humans became aware that other animals actually communicated between each other and used signals. And we perhaps considered that we were a bit special because we mm. had a large brain and, and could talk to each other and kind of make sense occasionally. Uh, but he found that other animals could do that. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, I'll just hand over to Dr. Ray in a sec. But the one of the things I find fascinating with, with bees is the complexity with which they go and do their jobs. So, I mean, actually pollinating is not something where – if there wasn't some sort of communication between them, would work well because you have a large number of bees, you have a large number of flowers. You obviously don't want them all going to the one location. And somehow they're coordinating that, which to me is just fascinating. Yeah, so, uh, and it's different in different bee species. So um, there we're talking about uh, Apis mellifera, the honeybee, mm. which is you know, now introduced to Australia, but uh, has been a, a present part of our our lives for a couple of centuries now. Uh, so the honeybee can use a dance language to communicate and we think that evolved in the tropics so that if a bee finds, an individual bee finds a, a big rewarding tree, she can fly back and tell her nestmates, hey, two kilometres north-southwest, 
you're going to you're going to get uh, a good reward, and they do actually go on mass. Yeah, different bee species like uh, the bumblebee, Bombus terrestris, which is not on mainland Australia. They don't give a vector direction. They just give a signal. Hey guys, there's food out there. Go for it. And then in Australia, we have lots of solitary bees, so they they just. They just go shopping on their own, if you like. Mm. It's fascinating, that first group. I think uh, the ability of giving a, a proper vector direction of both distance and and orientation um, is, is better than most humans have to say. I mean, that's why we're all using Google Maps, because we're pretty crap at this as human beings. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the slightly older generation who's always crap at using uh, Google Maps. <laughs> so I, I, I'm good if, 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 if a mate goes... Yeah, the pubs are about about five hundred meters that way. <laughs> yeah, I'm good unless it's a it's a cloudy day, Adrian. In which case, I'm a bit yeah, screwed. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Ray, you had a question. Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was just well, I, I, my mind is still reading about the fact that bees have the concept of zero, but um, I was curious in in the the letter from Einstein. Did did they speculate on what parts of physics they thought bees or birds would would really affect? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so Einstein, um, in the second part of this letter, switches to talking about birds and navigation and specifically mentions pigeons and long-distance flying birds. And that actually is amazing that he conceived that because many, many years later, it was shown that birds do navigate a very long distance and use a magnetic sense and some of the physics mechanisms behind that happens, how that is enabled, appear consistent with uh, some of the physics principles Einstein had written about in the 1930s. Oh, wow. it's, it's amazing stuff. Look, uh, Adrian, I think this is um, it's really great to, to see this sort of work coming out. And, and I love it when we hear about one of these old letters popping up somewhere and giving us insights into someone in, in an area which we didn't expect. I mean, Einstein's work is, you know, we, we're still, we only just did gravitational waves a couple of years ago. I and mean, then the guy was so far ahead of his time. I still think he was a time traveler, um, although he would disagree <laughs> with that, of course. But, you know, I- incredible that he had these insights. So thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with the ongoing work there and um, especially the work around the bees and stuff. I know you do a lot in that space, but it's really exciting. And uh, thanks for sharing it with us today on Triple R. Great to talk to you. Folks, that was uh, Adrian Dyer from Dyer from uh, RMIT University, an associate professor there working on some cool stuff. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. On the line with Dr. Ray and myself right now is Mr. Eric Levy. He's a pediatric and adult ear, nose and throat specialist. Good morning, Eric. How are you going? Good to talk to you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good morning, Ray. Lovely to be here. It's fantastic to have you on the line. Now, you, you do surgeries at a range of hospitals. I understand that both at St. Vincent's and at the Children's. Yeah, how, do you, how do you split your time between these two locations? Oh, it's very hard. It's too much fun and too much joy and too much excitement in those two hospitals. Um, in the Children's Hospital, obviously, I get to meet really, really wonderful kids. In the adult hospital, I really meet uh, wonderful cancer patients with their resilience as well. It's been really, really wonderful. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you what sort of surgeries you typically do, because whenever I hear the, the ENT, ENT, right, that's ear, nose that's and right. throat, does it, does it usually yes. involve the lot or do you do predominantly one area that you focus on? 
Yeah, we all have our subspecialty areas, but in general, we do cover uh, everything above the collarbone and a little bit outside the brain. Wow. Uh, so ear, <laughs> nose, throat, head and neck, airway, voice box, uh, you know, and, and head and neck tumors in the, both in the pediatric and the adult age group as well. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be a bit selfish for a moment and talk about uh, things like the voice box and so forth, you know, being yes. on radio, obviously. How, how far along has that gone in terms of surgical procedures these days when, you know, we hear about people getting esophageal cancer and various things? I mean, are you able to reconstruct those now or is that, is that part of the body you can do a lot with? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the larynx of the human voice box is one of the most amazing things. Now, we, each of us have got our own individual voices. Uh, there's no two voices alike. That's why there's voice recognition software, mm-hmm. because each of us are individually very different. And the human voice box is one of the most amazing things. It's just very finely controlled. I mean, we're one of the few species that can actually have a language. Um, so, yes, the, the basic answer to your question is, yes, there's been a lot of progress. We can do laser surgery, microsurgery, all of these things under uh, endoscopic transoral through the mouth or even through the neck uh, in, chi- in children's age group for example if there's a child who, have, who was born with an abnormal larynx we can reconstruct I take a rip graft uh, from a child and actually reconstruct their voice box to allow them to breathe some amazing amazing things that gets happened or that, that gets done uh, there's newer stuff there's a lot of research on laryngeal transplant believe it or not more recently from the US there was a, a, a first case of a laryngeal transplant Plant. Uh, that's still the holy grail in the future, but in the meantime, we're still uh, there's a lot of good stuff already. So, so is that transplant from from donors, just in the same way that Correct. you would? Yeah. So, well, Correct. just if you happen, if something happens to George Clooney, just give me yeah. a yell. Um, I'll I'll grab sure. his. Can we do that? <laughs> no problems. <laughs> I mean, in in many in many parts of the body, you know, there is a there is an issue around. You know, making sure there's a good match between uh, obviously certain blood types and so forth, but but also just age groups. You know, like it's it's atypical for a transplant to happen from a very old patient to a young patient and so forth. How does that play out with things like the larynx and so forth, where uh, it's different to the tissue? Yes, yes. So, so we've, we've studied the growth of the larynx. You know, the, the, the pediatric or the neonatal infant larynx grows in a very fascinating way over the lifetime. Even the older age uh, voice box will look very different to the young age. And there's a lot of neurology, neurology around it. There's a lot of muscle uh, memory, muscle, you know, uh, studies around that. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when, when you talk about that growth, I mean, one of the things that we know is that people's voices, and I'm sort of just hoping here, I guess, in, you know, I've been doing radio for almost 30 years, I'm hoping this is the case, but they don't seem to change that much after adulthood. Um, they seem pretty constant for quite a while. Do you see that yeah. as well in your work that these part, yeah. the parts that make the sound don't change a lot? Yes. So the, the parts that make the sound, the, the vibratory part of the, the voice box itself, the, the larynx or the vocal folds or the vocal cords, um, you know, don't change significantly much. But the tension, the, the, the muscle tension, the muscle control and then the framework actually do change. So, uh, you know, the biggest change is obviously from about, uh, you know, zero to four. And then there's a big change as well around about the puberty. And then over time, uh, things get stiffer or, 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 or you know, the, the vocal folds kind of of, uh, drop or droop a little bit and we can even improve vocal voices even even in the older age group with with injections uh stuff that we put on fillers around the face we can actually inject it into the vocal folds wow. to kind of boost up uh the the, the voice function so you, you tell me uh, when i get old i can get a maybe a botox shot in my vocal cords and i'm good <laughs> i'm good to sound 20 again 
give me a call. <laughs> uh, Dr. Ray. Uh, uh, on, that, uh, on that note, Dr. Shane, as a radio broadcaster, adheres to a very strong uh, radio broadcaster regimen, which I'm trying to understand if it's a myth or not. Myth or not. When he has an inflamed uh, throat or, or his voice is sore, he pounds pineapple like no tomorrow. Wow. With the expectation that the bromelain and the pineapple is helping not inflame his 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 throat and his voice box. Um, <laughs> is there any clinical you studies on that? <laughs> well, uh, I'll get back to you on that. I have to yeah. Google that. Uh, I don't know that pineapple actually does that. Well, the, the idea is you're actually right as well. The vocal folds just create the vibration of air. What actually then ends up projecting or 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 giving you the quality of your voice. It's actually the anatomy around your mouth, your nose, your soft palate, the resonance around your face. You know that when you have a full sinuses, you sound different uh, because the whole head is our 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 um, reflective chamber or, or or a projection chamber. I don't know. There's sound acoustics that come with it. So the shape of your tongue, your jaw, your lips, your palate, the tonsils, the adenoids, uh, the sinuses all play a part in projecting the quality of voice that you have. And that's why both of you have got beautiful radio voices uh, <laughs> because, you know, not only have you been trained around that area and projecting your voice, uh, you probably have got the perfect anatomy for that. Yeah, I think uh, I, I should say to our listeners, you know, because I, I put science out every week and the pineapple yeah. thing for me could be completely in my head. But <laughs> but I know that if I eat some eat some fresh pineapple and I've got a bit of a scratchy sore throat afterwards, I feel better. Yeah. And it's probably the acid layer something, but it definitely it seems to be help. right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the, the whole thing like uh, that's honey and lemon and mm. all those things that create a, a layer of, of moisture around the vocal folds and the larynx and around the throat as well that may actually improve the vibratory uh, qualities. Yeah. Now I have to look at the PubMed research on that carefully. <laughs> don't quote me on that. Don't yeah. don't suddenly buy a lot of pineapple <laughs> the next time you get a sore throat. Yeah. If you do get a sore throat, go get tested before you yeah. get your pineapple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pi- pineapple is not a cure for COVID. Um, it's, it's very fair to say. Now, Eric, uh, one of the reasons, you know, we've interacted a bit on Twitter lately and part of that is yeah. around your commentary on Twitter, which is pretty profound and, and good to see actually around the difficulties in healthcare at the moment with a lot of frontline healthcare workers, uh, especially around the pandemic, but just in general yes. about the health and well-being. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk us through a bit of that, because I think a lot of people don't see behind the, the curtain with people yes. like yourself and, you know, our, our extraordinary allied health services yeah. and, and, and what they do and how tough it's been. Yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks for that question, Shane. I mean, um, you're absolutely right. So what we're experiencing in Melbourne may be very different to what some of my colleagues are experiencing in, you know, Darwin or or Queensland or Perth and other places, and very different to what some of my colleagues in India or the UK or the US are experiencing. Mm. So all of these experiences are very unique. Now, with this being the fourth lockdown, we're a little bit more used to it. But last year, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of concerns. There's a lot of worries. And um, we were all sometimes singing from different uh, song sheets. You know, we're not on the same pages. Uh, it has taken us a bit of a time, but I think we're, we're, we're getting there. Uh, I must admit, you know, since the lockdown announcement on Thursday, you know, most of us have just basically rolled up our sleeve, just get the job done. But you're right. I think there are, you know, I, I mentioned uh, talking to some people to say, I think we're all firstly human beings. Mm. Secondly, we want to prioritize our patients and our communities. And then thirdly, we also want to look after each other. And that's been quite challenging with the mask, with the uh, face shield, 
our human touch have really been taken away from us. We're no longer shaking hands. We're no longer hugging. We're no longer touching patients or being close to patients the way we used to. So that's been challenging. And all of us felt a certain bit of mad, sad, bad, and maybe glad. So we've been mad at, you know, what's been going on? What's the plan? Why, why are we not getting our PPEs and things like mm. that? You know, we've been feeling sad. We're sad because we're struggling <clears throat> with the fact that there's a lot of people out there that are struggling even worse than, than we are. We've been pretty lucky in healthcare uh, that we do have a job that we go to, but yep. we, we feel sad for a lot of our other industries. And, and, and sometimes we feel really bad to see that there's a lot of suffering, um, you know, with last year's lockdown. But at the same time, so we, all of these things are not just negative, but they are all human emotions. And we just go through that as a team. As a surgeon, I cannot do what I do by myself. The nurses have been the one that's been lifting my spirits up. Um, and, you know, we used to think that the, the healthcare workers on the front line were actually the back line, particularly me in surgery, were insulated. It's the people at the front line, the, the swap testing nurses, the, the people who are doing the scientists, you know, it's lab scientists, the, uh, you know, the, the security guards. These are the people on the front line and they are the ones that we really need to thank, you know, and, and really need to take our hat off. The people that were looking after you in the queue yesterday, they were the ones that I think are on the front line. And what you've done yesterday, Shane, with, with uh, stepping up to get vaccinated is typically exactly what most Melbournians do. They're just local heroes <clears throat> just want to get the job done. You know, yeah. Well yeah. done on that. Hey, look, it was very interesting for me when the, when the, the, the people at uh, the showgrounds that I had the most respect for was the, the poor yeah. security guard at, yes. the, at the very entrance to the, the building uh, yes. where the temperature went up by 15 degrees, by the way, as you walked inside, it was, yes. it was very pleasant. Oh. But he well. had to ask every person the same three questions. Yes. And and I sort of had a bit of a joke for him. I said, you know, uh, you know you, you're going to lose it at some stage today. Like, are you going to chuck, <laughs> chuck in a fourth question just yeah. just for good yeah. measure? Just make one up just to keep your life yeah. exciting. And you had a good yeah. sense of humor, but, you know, standing up, you know, we, we'd been standing yes. in the queue for a long time, but the, these, these people have been standing up yes. for very protracted periods of time. And I know my... My wife recently had some surgery at St. Vincent's and you're coming in through those doors, getting screened, hearing every second person having a reason why they shouldn't have to follow the rules. It, it must be extremely stressful, like the, just the well-being of staff must be hard to keep on top of. It absolutely is. And then oftentimes it's the voices of the voiceless that we don't hear. What I mean mm. by that is that the security guards, the car park attendants, they are the ones that actually smile at me every single day and say, welcome, doc. You know, it's, it's almost as if we, 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 we are in the limelight as doctors or nurses, but there's a lot of support staff out there. They are the true frontline heroes in, in our communities. You know, the, the ones that are cleaning my, my office between patients, wiping them, wiping the seat down, wiping the computer down. They are the ones who are really, really, you know, really I'm grateful for. And you're absolutely right. There's been a lot of challenges and we have to admit this is an unprecedented situation that we're in right now, you know, the pandemic and everything. But I'm so glad that most people just want to do the right thing. They just step up, roll up their sleeve, get the job done. Um, and there are a lot of good support as well, both informal and formal, meaning the formal support from the institutions, from the government, there's a well-being network or health network support that's being created. But there's a lot of informal support. I get a lot of support from you, Shane, just watching and being interacting <laughs> on Twitter. Um, you know, it's the social stuff 
that is no longer face to face but has been mm. moved to online that actually empowers our discussion uh, around around this area and empowers our spirits as well i suppose yeah i think i think and the more we can put that information out there and make sure people have, have got it as quickly yes. and as clearly as possible and i think yes. you know one of the the great things about twitter restricting the amount that you can write is you you have to think a bit more about how clearly <laughs> you communicate right. you know you haven't got people sending you page long you know right. lot of uh, you know bits of nonsense text instead you've got a few yes. lines and you've got to, you've got to think clearly so i think that really helps yes. us to get these messages out well look eric it's it's great to finally meet you in person we've been interacting on twitter for a while um, that's right thanks it's so much been my joy. yeah look yeah it's and, been my joy shane i mean you, you you've you've always, always been passionate about science and communication and that's one of the two of my biggest passions as well so i'm glad to see the work that you both do dr shane and dr ray no doubt we will bump into each other in person in the future. Eric, uh, take, take care of yourself. Good luck with the ongoing surgeries and so forth. And uh, we'll chat right. to you again soon. Take care, Dr. Shane. Take care, Dr. Ray. Thanks, Eric. Now, that was, uh, that was Eric Levy, folks, a ear, nose and throat surgeon specialist here in Melbourne. Triple R. On the line with myself and Dr. Ray right now is Associate Professor Margie Danch, and she's been on the show many times before. She's the group leader of vaccine uptake at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. She also holds a role at the Royal Children's Hospital in the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Margie. Great to have you back on the show. Good morning, Shane and Ray. It's such a pleasure to be back. It's fantastic. Now we uh, we of course have a lot to talk to talk about in the in the next few minutes because you know, it's vaccine season all of a sudden. People, I mean, you must be you must be very excited that. And I know the reasons are bad because we've had a bit of an outbreak here in Melbourne, but all of a sudden um, we're talking about we've gone from talking about people not wanting to get vaccinated at all to you know queues that are in my case six hours long. That's right. I mean, with this recent lockdown and the fact that the vaccine's now been opened up to the 40 to 49-year-old age group, we've just seen people coming out in droves. But, you know, I feel somewhat disappointed that this is driven a bit by fear um, with the recent outbreak. But, of course, you know, having the access open up to that new age group is just so exciting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of us that have been in that situation in certain age groups where, and I know a lot of people who are even younger than than I am, which is more than half the the population, I suppose. But um, who are who are very eager to get the vaccine, but don't yet have access. I mean, presumably that's one of the big things preventing um, the widespread um, use of vaccination at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, with so much focus on, on the clotting syndrome and a lot of the vaccine safety issues, there's been a lot of talk about hesitancy. But actually, the number one issue for under vaccination is almost certainly related to access and practical barriers. In our research that we've been doing in partnership with the Victorian Department of Health, um, in our population, the, the 1B population, which is the, the older adults and those with at-risk medical conditions, mm-hmm. Of that group who were eligible for the vaccine, over half said, yep, just too hard. It's, I don't know how to book. I don't know how to get the vaccine. I, I'm worried I'm going to wait too long. So these practical barriers are real for people and they are preventing, you know, people actually getting the vaccine. And then, as you said, there are some groups that still don't even have access who really, really want to go and get the vaccine. Yeah, it's quite funny. And I, I suspect it's very spread in different locations too. I know I, was, I had to get a blood test a couple of weeks ago at my local GP clinic. 
And the pathologists there, we were talking about this, and they said, oh, they've got more vaccines than they knew what to do with. There was no one making appointments. And I thought, wow, you know, you hear one, one story at one moment where people can't get access, and then in another location there seems to be more more than they can utilise. And that, that lack of consistency or, uh, I suppose, a system that allows people to be allocated to different locations where there is access is problematic. Yeah, no, very much so. And, you know, I think there are also a number of different locations. You know, obviously it's been offered through primary care or in these sort of more mass vaccination centres, which you went to yesterday. Yeah. Um, but but be- people being able to, you know, ring the number, get through on the number. I mean, I've heard of people waiting on that current hotline number now for over two and a half hours to try and make an appointment, uh, which of course is the way to go if possible because as you saw you waited nearly five and a half hours if you just rock up but people are willing to do that at the moment yeah i think too um one of the things i noticed yesterday you know being in that freezing cold queue for quite a while and i'm, I'm trying to work out today whether i have um you know the post-vaccine sort of uh side effects you know of being tired a bit lethargic and so forth or whether it's just that i was out in the cold waiting for five and a half hours because it's probably it's probably the latter i think i've got a sore arm but i you know the rest i think is just me being over tired but we were in the queue with with some great people you know fortunately for me they're all my generation you know, a lot of ex-geners there we we're all we we're all talking about cassette tapes and stuff I, I had a great guy in front of me named joel who uh, i think his wife might listen to the show but you know joel's in gardening and about four hours in joel just lost his shit and started pulling weeds out it was great like we people loved it you know it was it was a good it was a really good environment um, there was a lack of food and water and toiletry capabilities, I think, for such a long period of time. I actually managed to con a security guard to hold my spot where I went to the bathroom at one point, which I was particularly proud of. And I think uh, she she got out of there real quick because she realized that I was starting something that was not going to be sustainable for several hundred people for her to to, to deal with. But, uh, I mean, you know, there's a, there, was a good, there was a good sort of uh, vibe around people getting yeah. it. I think that feeling of everyone being in the trenches together and doing it mm. together is so important, that sense of community, you know, and um, it's terrific to hear you share your story, Shane, because that was the other thing that came through loud and clear in our research was people want to hear these stories from real people, not only how how they booked it, but also what their experience was in that first couple of days and that they might have had some side effects, but they were okay. They had some Panadol or Nurofen. Most people didn't have to have the day off work, but you know, those real stories, people are really keen to hear others' mm. experiences. So, you know, the more we share that, the better, I think. Oh, I, I can tell you the biggest side effect for me, and look, it's one that's going to be with me for a while, and I'm not really sure what to do about it, but when I was first checking in with uh, one of the Western Health nurses, and she she asked me my age, and I, I said 49, she asked me again a couple of times, like she didn't believe me, and that was, that was pretty hurtful, Margie. I don't know how I'm going to get over that. Like, I know I look like crap because I've been out in the cold for five hours, but <laughs> it was a bit tough. Yeah, no, you don't really need that. But um, <laughs> we had a good laugh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of um, in terms of your work there at the hospital, I mean, what are you what are you up to at the moment? Are you are you a hundred percent on just the broader vaccination uptake work and so forth? Or are you still managing to do your work at the Royal Children's where you're? Because you know we're all talking about COVID vaccinations, but there's a lot of other vaccinations that we need kids to to get, right? 
That's right. Well, I sort of have kind of three parts to my work. I do work within the immunisation service at the Royal Children's Hospital. So that's all, of course, business as usual. And in the most part, you know, the impact of the childhood vaccination um, uptake hasn't been great with the pandemic, which is good. People are still getting their kids vaccinated. But no, the focus is mostly on COVID vaccination. Our hospital is now giving it to adolescents with some um, chronic medical conditions between 16 and 18. That started this last week so that's really exciting that we can open it up to that group um, but yes I, I am doing a lot of research and um, have been doing that in partnership with the Victorian Department of Health mostly who I think have really done an exceptional job in terms of the rollout despite all of the challenges um, and then yeah the last part of my, my job is really working at, at Melbourne Uni um, as the Director of Clinician Scientist Pathways. I'm a very passionate advocate for combining research and clinical mm. work as you know. Yeah, indeed. Now, in terms of the, the communication of all this, this is where you and I have, have talked a lot. It, it seems as though, I mean, you know, as someone in communication, you can, you can feel free to not comment if I step over the line here, but the, the federal government communication and marketing program around vaccines, in my view, has just been appallingly um, mismatched with what's required. And we're seeing some of these fantastic ones that bring together a bit of humour with a lot of knowledge and one of the things that we know in communication is if you're boring, people won't remember a word you say. I mean, how, how are you seeing that and, and what would you like to see done? Do we do we need to get Rebel Wilson involved? I mean, you know, I know you and I talked about Hugh Jackman at one point. How do we, you know, how do we make this this communication work in a, in a way that has people actually remembering something for more than 10 seconds? Yeah, look, I think the Commonwealth comms campaign has been quite factually based. Um, it has been sort of more static and, and focused really on, the, you know, the regulatory processes and safety mm. and how to get but as you say, what's sort of maybe lacking is that real sense of emotion and tapping into to people's sense of, well, you know, why why do I want to get this vaccine? And, and as we know, up until now anyway in Victoria, there hasn't been much community transmission. So the risk of severe disease and people getting very sick has been much reduced. So I think what our challenge now is still to frame uh, the broader benefits of vaccination. And that is really apparent for us at the moment in Victoria. We can't keep living like this. We, you know, this fear of lockdown, mm. fear of school closures. I mean, I'm just devastated that the kids are out of school again for another week. Inability to travel, you know, to freely see our elderly grandparents without fear of, you know, potentially getting them sick. You know, these broader benefits are real for people. So, as you said, that beautiful New Zealand campaign really taps into that. You know, it's called uh, Let's Do It For Each Other and it has that gorgeous scene of, you know, the, the nurse opening the, the door to the vaccine clinic and it's called the metaphorical door to freedom. Mm. But, you know, the kids at school, you know, people being able to travel again, that's tapping into real relatable people and, you know, that beautiful emotion of we want to get out of this. We want to move out of this pandemic now. Yeah. Now, let, let's just talk through, before we take a bit of a break, I want to talk through some aspects of the vaccines here just to sort of break it down a bit for people because I suppose there's there's a few big pieces for me that I think are of interest. One is when I get vaccinated, what are my chances of getting the disease? Two is will I get sick? And three is can I then pass it on? And, I mean, can you talk us through, just, just say, for example, the, the big ones for us, AstraZeneca and, and Pfizer, what those three things look like, you know, whether there are big advantages between the two and, and what our expectations should be? 
So what's really exciting now is we have real-world data to talk about, not just the clinical trial data, which was done in 30 to 40,000 people. Mm. We're talking about, you know, millions of people now who've received these vaccines. And the real-world data, in fact, there's a publication just out in the MJA that compares um, these data across five countries and shows at least an 80% reduction in people needing to go to hospital or, or even, in fact, getting infected. So... Your first question around the prevention of severe disease, well, both vaccines, so both Pfizer and AstraZeneca from real-world data, is about a 90% reduction in terms of needing to go to hospital or ICU and, you know, being really seriously unwell. In terms of the prevention of any infection, so mild or moderate symptoms, that is a bit less, but it's still pretty high. It's still in the 80s. Mm. And then, very excitingly, the impact on transmission, so these are data that have also recently come out of the UK, from Public Health England shows about a 70% reduction in transmission. And that was after only one dose in a lot of cases of either AstraZeneca or Pfizer because very few people in the UK have still had two. So that's pretty exciting because that was really the data we were waiting for. You know, if people have had at least one dose and then they do get infected, what is their chance of passing it on? Well, it's about 70% less. Um, and even if they do pass it on, they're likely to pass on less virus from their nose. So, I mean, I don't think anyone 12 months ago thought that we would have vaccines that are this good. Um, and so this constant rhetoric about AstraZeneca being the second-rate vaccine, mm. the poor vaccine, is not true. It's actually performing incredibly well in, from real-world data across all those dimensions. Yeah. I suppose, too, we have to give um, some insights into what these reduction numbers mean. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm just going to throw a random number out. So if I have a 2% chance of getting um, getting COVID and the vaccine gives me a, say, 50% reduction in that chance, then my chance becomes 1%. Yeah? Yeah, now, that's exactly right. Yeah, so this is often confusing to people. Like they think, oh, I've got a 50% chance of getting it. It's like, no, no, no. It reduces your existing chance by that much. So when you're talking about 80 or 90% chance, uh, re reduction, then then my numbers, if they started off at, you know, 1% or 2%, are then really low, yeah? Well, of course, but that's also dependent on the amount of disease in the community. Mm. You know, the situation, if you're living in India right now or PNG or Timor-Leste, uh, where communities are completely overwhelmed by disease, then it's a different equation. Um, and that's part of the issue here at the moment is people just don't feel acutely at risk yep. from COVID severe disease, as I said before. Uh, but yes, I mean, you know, as we've seen, hotel quarantine is, is sadly not perfect and will never be perfect. And so we constantly do live with this risk of quarantine breaches and outbreaks in the community. And that is the reality. So, you know, I think we're sitting at around about a 16 to 18% coverage of one dose, might even be up to 20% now of people in Australia have had one dose. And we need to get probably over 80% coverage. So we have an incredibly long way to go before we are freed from this constant threat of lockdowns. Mm. When we talk about 80% coverage like that, what percentage of our population can simply not be vaccinated due to illness or other um, prevention requirements, you know, like people who are on immunotherapies or, you know, I mean, what is that percentage? 
It's pretty low because the COVID vaccines are inactivated or killed vaccines. They're not live vaccines. So immunocompromised individuals can have the vaccine. So there are very few true contraindications. Anaphylaxis to a previous dose of coronavirus vaccine, for example, is a contraindication. And with AstraZeneca, um, there's some very rare contraindications related to some uh, rare uh, clotting syndromes. But, you know, it's it's actually a very small proportion of people who cannot be vaccinated at all. Mm. Right. Um, so to get to that 80 percent, what, what I haven't heard in the media at all or, or from National Cabinet, but maybe I missed it, was a discussion about the 12 to 16 age range. Because I know in other countries it's starting to get approved. Pfizer has been approved for that range as well. And, and that's another fraction that can go a long way towards that 80 percent. Yeah. Where are we talking about vaccinating children uh, as, a, as a cohort there? Yeah, so this is the debate that's really raging at the moment, particularly in the UK. You're right, in the US they have started. And here in Australia, we've only started for the 16 to 18 group. Um, I think the problem here is that, as we all know, children don't get as sick from coronavirus. The proportion that get very sick need to go to hospital is incredibly small. So, in fact, the direct benefit for kids is not great. The greatest benefit of vaccinating children is that they then won't get infected and won't transmit the disease in the community. So, can we justify vaccinating kids to provide that indirect protection, you know, to adults and uh, older individuals and, and those at highest risk? So, you know, but that doesn't mean that kids have no risk from getting seriously unwell. We all he heard last year um, about that, um, you know, the, the hyperinflammatory syndrome, uh, the PIMS-TS syndrome. Kids have died, particularly in the under 12-month age group. So it's not a zero risk of serious illness in kids, but it's pretty small. Mm. So I think this, you know, risk-benefit is still going on in terms of discussion. My personal view is that we can target younger adults. You know, last year in terms of COVID admissions, uh, sorry, COVID transmission, we saw that about 50% of infections were in young adults aged between 20 and 39. So so actually, I think we need to roll our sleeves up and encourage younger adults, particularly young women, who we know from most research are the most highly hesitant or, or, or least willing to have a COVID vaccine. I think we can do a lot of work in, in those age groups to get uptake and coverage up in the community before we necessarily turn to children. Mm -hmm. The other issue with kids, just quickly, is the whole equity issue. You know, as high-income countries, can we justify vaccinating that age group when we know that there are a lot of low- and middle-income countries right here in our region, on our doorstep, whose adult at-risk populations have not yet been vaccinated. And, you know, we're all aware of, of Tedros's messages through WHO and COVAX, and I think vaccine equity is a critical issue for us all to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely, Margie. Three, triple listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R here. Uh, we've got Margie Danchin, Professor from the Children's Hospital, on the line. We're talking about vaccinations. Now, Margie, I just wanted to cover off quickly your thoughts on what's being called long COVID. I, I've come across quite a few people who are suffering from this condition. This, to me, is the thing that scares the crap out of me as someone in their 40s more than anything else, the idea that I might end up with a chronic disease as a result of this. 
Yeah, this is um, a big issue. And, of course, we know that long COVID, so what that really means is people who have persisting chronic symptoms after COVID infection, and some of them might be mild, but some of them are quite disabling in terms of fatigue, headaches, muscle aches, neurological issues. And it, it sadly occurs not only after people who've had serious critical illness and been admitted, say, to an ICU, in which case I think, you know, in that recent data that was published from, from Monash that uh, Professor Carol Hodson was talking about in the media, up to 90% of those patients had some symptoms that were continuing. But even people who experience mild disease, um, you know, 10 to 20% of those people have persisting crippling symptoms as well. So this is something that we need to talk about. I know the government is in investing um, money in research so that we can understand it and study it further. So you're quite right, Shane. People need to factor this in as well and remember that it's not only elderly uh, adults that mm. can suffer from young people as well. Yeah, look, that's the thing for me that's been scaring the crap out of me and one of the reasons I, I went and got vaccinated yesterday is beyond anything else, beyond just believing in the science and and doing the show for so many years. And, and this has been one of the most exciting times for me, the, the fact that we've got this vaccine so quickly available. And I know it's based on decades of work, but, you know, the turnaround time has been phenomenal. Just before you go, though, um, you, you've got some programs going on with regards to advocacy work and so forth in the community and engagement. Give us a quick rundown on that. So very quickly, we're working again in partnership with the Victorian Department of Health. Um, we've been running a Train the Trainer Vaccine Champions program where we've been running these webinars with community, faith leaders, industry leaders, so that they can go back into their own communities and, and settings and advocate for the vaccines and help people to book you know, their appointments, get access to really good information and just answer questions. And it's been so exciting and an absolute privilege to work with those individuals and see their passion to support their communities. So that work will be continuing and we'll hopefully be expanding it out to more regional areas that I know are struggling as well. But real community engagement is critical, um, not only in terms of information and advocacy, but also in getting the vaccines out there, outreach um, sort of programs and, and vaccines delivered on the ground in communities. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Now, Maggie, have you had a day off in the last six months uh, as a result of all this? <laughs> How are you going? Um, I don't think I can complain. I, I tell you, the, the public health um, officials are the real champions here. They are working day in, day out. So anything we can do to support them, I'm delighted to do so. Big shout out to Ben Cowie and his team in the Department of Health. The, and uh, presumably uh, the t like there's this monstrous team of contact tracers, which I, I wonder if they uh, get to the point, do they just throw the paper up in the air at some stage and go, look, let's just call Melbourne a site. Uh, does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I mean, I spoke to uh, some of the team just uh, on Friday and they'd been working up to 15 hours um, mm. already in the day, contact tracing, speaking with, you know, schools, huge, huge work. So I think we owe them the greatest debt of gratitude and respect, actually, for the work that they're doing. Yeah. Well, Professor Margie Danchen, Fabulous to have you on yet again on the show. Uh, no doubt it will be uh, not that long before we chat to you again because we always have so much to talk about. And this is a, a changing uh, beast as we go. There's been so much negative press with regards to the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is disproportionate to risk and has really scared yeah. the crap out of people. And I think we all understand that when people say they're fearful, there's good reason for that. And it's not the reason is not the science. The reason is the communication. And you are one of the, the shining lights in terms of communicating well on this particular topic. As I've said before, thanks so much for chatting to us and hope you do get some time off. I know you've been working very hard. Thanks so 
so much, Shane. It's always a pleasure to come and chat to you. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was Professor Marjorie Danchin from the Royal Children's Hospital, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the University of Melbourne. And uh, I've still got Dr. Ray on the line. We uh, we have to hand over to the team from Eat It, Ray. Thanks for being online with me today. Oh, thanks. This is a fantastic show. It's, Great uh, show in lockdown. <laughs> We're getting there. Folks, uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm very happy to say I've now had dose one of Pfizer and I'm looking forward to my next trip to Western Health to get dose number two in about uh, three weeks minus a day. But until then, um, I'm going to keep talking about it because it's important that we all get vaccinated as quickly as possible as soon as we have access to do so. Going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a fantastic Sunday and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.